0: With six, six, five, five, four, three, two, one. Hello Rankin Reviewers, and welcome to the first of a two-part special episode of Rankin Review. Rankin Review vs. Star Trek these two episodes, I have two guests, and they happen to be siblings, Jaron Francis and Paxton Francis. And I selected these two gentlemen not just because they're good friends of mine, but because they know their shit when it comes to Star Trek. It was about a year ago now we did a two-part episode on Star Wars, the first part being nerd rage, the second part being nerd love. <clears throat> you will find I'm less passionate when it comes to Star Trek. As a child, I always looked at Star Trek as kind of like the less cool little brother of Star Wars. Um, I've grown a finer appreciation of it, but as I am not a card-carrying Trekkie, I invited two full-blown Star Trek nerds to participate. How full-blown? Well, we're going to need two episodes to get all of this done. But that's okay. It's sometimes good to roll up our sleeves and dig right into it. Now, all you Trekkies out there are probably going to want to have your voices heard. You can definitely do that by sending feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. And everybody should be well aware of the fact that there will be spoilers and there will be coarse language throughout. We are going to look at the first six Star Trek films, those including the original cast from the original show. And without further ado, welcome as always to Rank and Review. All right. Um, so, gentlemen, uh, I have two Francis's with me for the, this episode of Rank and Review. Franci. Uh, Franci, if you would like it. We have uh, Jaron Francis. We, we haven't heard from you since episode 25. I'm back. But he's back, damn it. And, and we have uh, Paxton Francis, regular contributor. And today we're going to talk about Star Trek, specifically the six original cast films. The real movies. In the Star Trek, the real movies, say the fans on board. And uh, I remember, one of the first times ever, I think, remember being in your parents' place when I first met you, and mm-hmm. I noticed downstairs that there was this wall of VHSs <laughs> of, like, original episodes Columbia of House. Trek. Yeah, yeah, yeah we were vision. Columbia
1: House members. We got a couple episodes in the mail once a and month.
0: i think you had a star trek t-shirt so i knew you were into star trek but when i saw the wall of star trek i was like oh no this is like long term this was bred into you yeah, <laughs> so yeah like, you knew i was <laughs> yeah opposed. this was real yeah because for me my star trek affinity starts largely with the next generation i mean i i watched these star trek films when i was a kid and i liked them a lot but and i, I do not so wanna, much the show though i don't want to hurt any feelings but at the time when i was a kid I watched Star Trek to satiate myself because I was worn out from watching Star Wars, mm. <laughs> right? They were the other Star, mm. you know, science fiction action-adventure movies. But what I don't have a very strong affinity for is the original series. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I haven't seen all of the episodes, to be honest, of the original series. I've seen probably, I'm going to say, maybe 60 to 70 percent, and uh, I find them like... Kitschy almost to the point of like the Batman TV show, which was airing against it at the time. It was its main and competition, was, yeah, and, and was always killing it in the ratings. <laughs> yeah,
1: beating the, the pants off of it. Always was more Whack, expensive cow. than Star Trek once they got into the later season. The last
0: season of Trek was made up really on the cheap. Even when I was a kid, though, it sort of felt old and cheap <laughs> to me. I, mean, I know it seems like a harsh word, but that's how I felt about Star Trek until the movies, basically. So re-
1: there's a reason why the aesthetic and the tone of the storytelling in the six movies we're about to talk about is a huge departure from the tone of the television show, because everybody associated with it, maybe except for Gene Roddenberry, realized how dorky, the format was on TV. I think, I of think even th- he did. Like he, yeah, he, he did. wrote the first movie,
2: and it's the one that's well. He probably it. least like the TV show in terms of the energy. Yeah. So I don't think it was lost on him. I think Harold just it was, just, wrote the, it was the necessity of its time, right? Like there were so many people other than him that were telling him you gotta you gotta make this sellable. You gotta make this. I mean, there's a reason the first pilot didn't. But is the
0: original series sacred text to you guys, or is it just something you love because you've had loved it since you were kids? It's, like? not,
1: it's not sacred text to me at all. Uh, I would say there are, of those uh, original episodes, less than a dozen that I would say are really good pieces of television. Right. Uh, but And, and there are maybe like, if somebody wanted to know what the original series was about, I would have no problem pairing the whole thing down to a half a dozen half episodes and saying, now you have a good understanding of Star Trek. I was going to say, a about couple half of, really of season
2: one, you could watch half of season one and get to really... Yeah, you'd th- you know,
1: do a couple action episodes, some of the really tense ones, like the Doomsday Machine or Amok Time or uh, Arena, right? And then some of the funnier episodes you might want to do. What's the time travely one with... Uh, city on the edge of forever or that's not funny. <laughs> no it's not funny it's that's one the of, t- it's of the most tragic episodes It's tragic I jumped away from trouble with Tribbles. right <laughs> the, the funny time travelly one is uh, a piece of the action.' do not time travel. the I just that's
2: right the, it's are a, very mimicking it, it's so a so a they, current their whole society planet. becomes
1: based on this 1920s like gangs Chicago of the 20s gangster Chicago gangster the history novel and they base their whole society yep. off of it in a century right Yeah that's not time travel we're right. gonna be back Close for a piece of the action
0: that's right but there's this sort of interesting kitsch quality to that and that you're right is it's winked at here and there in the movies but is pretty much entirely gone mm-hmm. and like for for me like The movies are really beloved, and I think deservedly so, but I think it's interesting how not like the TV show they are Mm -hmm. really at all. And better for it. And better for it. Point in fact, there was talk before the motion picture happened of a very different take on Star Trek, where they were going to do Star Trek versus the Greek gods, Clash of the Titans style. They were going to somehow merge the popularity of things like Clash of the Titans and the Star Trek universe. It was put, put forth as an idea, I think as a TV movie. Whose idea thing, was it? I don't know all the specifics of this. I mean, but
1: it had already been linked in the television show. There's an episode where they meet Adonis, no, yeah, they no, no, uh, Apollo, Apollo, yeah, and like he's literally the being who was Apollo right. here three thousand years ago in ancient Greece, and they it just explains how they had being. godlike powers. And all of advanced. the Greek gods, they find the planet where they all live now.
0: It was proposed and outlined as, I believe, a TV movie, according to what I was reading last week, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, like that's where it could have gone. It could have gone that crazy and kitschy and been this sort of... And instead it waits until Star Trek V to do that. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's interesting though, like what could, again, it could have been, that arguably might have been closer to the authentic Star Trek movie as far as what people would expect from the TV show.
1: I'd be curious to see what we'd have had if, uh, if instead of these six movies we'd had... A year or two of an ultimately failed, but maybe really good for a little while Star Trek Phase Two, right. with the original cast, uh, in the realm of what the first movie was in terms of tone and time
2: timeline and that kind of thing. That's
1: right. I mean, the original movie was started off as a uh, screen a teleplay for Star Trek Phase Two. Right. they mind? Even of the, the even some of the sets that they built and stuff <laughs> were actually built for Phase Two before it got junked. Because you, you mentioned it, we'll talk about it when we get to the review, but Alan Dean Foster wrote the story for for uh, the motion picture. I think it was his script for a Phase 2 episode.
0: Really? That's what Wikipedia well, we'll says. will talk about it.
1: Screenplay by Harold Livingston, story by Alan Dean Foster.
2: Talk about how off the rails, like, the original, I've read, the original climax of Roddenberry's first script for the movie that was rejected. It... it it ended with kirk having a fist fight on the bridge with jesus oh wow <laughs> so it was a time travel story i'm
0: guessing although does again the, maybe jesus <laughs> just showed up yeah.
1: again they waited for star trek 5 to have does Kirk battle a christian entity yeah
0: okay. does he start by saying why would jesus need a spaceship <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe he didn't um. uh, so, I guess you guys already covered it, there's a handful of uh, episodes, you would say, essentials, but any best and worsts out of the original series that are worth mentioning to the other Trekkies listening? Or to the would-be Trekkies who might want to dabble their feet? Mm-hmm.
2: There's a couple of really strong, all the strongest ones, or most of the strongest ones, are in season one, oddly. And I don't know if they just got beholden Balance to of ratings terror. or what.
1: Balance of Terror is really strong. That's the first appearance of the Romulans, where the actor who would later, Mark Leonard, who would later play Spock's father through all of these movies and in the original series. He originally played uh, Romulan commander, and he and Kirk go toe-to-toe in what's ostensibly just a submarine battle episode. Right. Yeah, but it's, but it's really what's tense. that
2: famous submarine movie uh, from the 50s?
1: Our, from the 50s. Silent oh, Run running. Silent, Run Deep. Run, run silent, silent, Run Deep. Yeah,
2: it's basically that, except on run the teams. Teams, which is which they borrowed heavily from for I mean, the con.
1: Yeah, it's perfect. It's more not, yeah, it's... Uh, the, a destroyer versus submarine battle right because right. The, the Romulans can cloak the Enterprise can't yeah. it's basically just a World War II destroyer submarine and you get hunt. both sides of the well, the battle just equally and the know, mutual and... respect between commanders that's yeah, one like of the tragic episodes when they kill the bad guys like if you yeah. said top three episodes people should see if they watch the original series I'd probably see A Balance of Terror a mock Time the one where Spock goes into his mating frenzy and has the fight to quote unquote to the death with Kirk at the end, with the the uh, crazy Vulcan weapons, the on wound. Wound. the on the lirpa, the uh, lirpa, and then City on the Edge of Forever, I think. probably with Joan Top Collins, three. where they where they travel back in time and they have to let her die in order for Hitler to know. Well, win they World don't. It's generally speaking, it's the
0: seriously themed episodes that are the good ones. Then, is sort of what I'm hearing. Uh, mm-hmm.
2: I think they just give the best of what the show could do. And right. give the strongest sense of why the characters are compelling. Episodes like Trouble with Tribbles, I love, but there's nothing about them that you can't completely excise and still have the essentials of why the characters are great.
1: Yeah, yeah. The sh- episodes like that are fun. Uh, a piece of the action is fun, that sort of thing. And the, the other time traveling one I was thinking of is when they end up in low Earth orbit in the late '60s and this yeah. jet scramble after them. I don't remember. Tomorrow is yesterday. Tomorrow is yesterday. That's the one. But, <laughs> but Yeah. Certain episodes really illustrate the chemistry well, too, between the episode, the characters. Galileo 7 is a good one if you want to yeah, get understanding a one. of Spock's character. Spock's first S- command. Spock has to lead the mission when they're stranded on some uncharted planet that turns out to be in, uh, inhabited by these like eight or nine foot tall proto-human like, cavemen with huge they throw spears and rocks at them and, and they're trying to fix the shuttlecraft while fending off this attack and Spock's got to make some really hard decisions and come and face to face and people keep dying and he's baffled by how because yeah, so he's logical every step of the way he's made the logical decision and he's butting but up against gone. the fact that that doesn't matter sometimes still, the real world gets in the way <laughs> that's right yeah. which ironically enough Kirk doesn't even fully learn that lesson until the second movie which we'll talk about when we get there it's sort of Spock's Kobayashi Maru he sacrifices themselves, them all, at the end
0: on a big gamble, and it just happens yeah. to work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's he one of the, the interesting things about James Dean Kirk. <laughs> I love me William Shatner, and I do think he's actually a legit actor. But there is something make fun ofable about yes. the Shat. Whenever I would do uh, the, my improv shows, or we're putting together a cast to do a show, I would have a strict no Shatning in this show. <laughs> if you're going too far, I will tell you, right? And. Uh, he has this reputation for being big, but I think that that was one of the things that I liked about rewatching these movies, is actually growing... Well, I mean, I always knew it was there, but reminding myself that the Shat can act. And yep. he can. He can, can. act anyway. <laughs> he's, and in a lot of ways, like a living cliche, <laughs> but uh, he, he had some game, and I respect
1: that. Part of it might be that he's got... Uh, his sense of humor and his sense of wanting to be entertaining is such that he... He makes fun of himself a lot. He's allowed himself to become a cartoon version of William It was Shatner. like his
2: third act. That's the third act of his career. Yeah. It's like
1: being a parody It's being a Priceline parody of William Shatner. And even when he was on Boston Legal winning awards, he was playing Bill William Shatner. Shatner parody.
0: Yeah, I remember it being written somewhere like that Rodney uh, Dangerfield. he does the best Bill Shatner in the business. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> so Nobody's better. Exactly. But he
1: also, I do think it would be interesting to go back and watch him play Hamlet at Stratford or something and just see how... Uh, the, his talent stacked up before he had the huge fame, right? Yeah, I mean, you can listen to I'm him sure to, he, to be or not to be on the transformed man. Everyone, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that was recorded after he was all. It was recorded in '68. Yeah, yeah, he was all big headed already. He was already doing uh, readings of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds on live TV mm-hmm. and thinking people <laughs> should listen to him and be happy to hear it for
0: some reason. Drink it in, people. Actually, it's not
1: Lucy in the Sky that's as bad as the other
0: one. Mr. Tambourine Man. They're all ordinary. Mr. Tambourine Man is the worst Rat one. That wins. But
1: as much hell as the chat catches for that stuff... <coughs> Bilbo Baggins. The, the Ballad of Bilbo Baggins by Leonard Nimoy is... Wow. Anybody listening who doesn't know what we're talking about you should Google what I just or said. Or just count yourself lucky. We'll try not to let yeah, it overtake that.
0: it, but I don't mind hearing a little bit through the course of the reviews, too, about the weird dick-measuring thing that seemed to be going on between Nimoy and Shatner through these movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, no,
1: really big. I mean, you have two cultural icons who were right from the beginning of the time they worked together competitive with one another because they were... Mm-hmm. Right. Shat- not really?
2: Well, from this, I've read a lot of books by both of them. I know, and you're a total It's loser. really a one-way contest. Even Shatner admits to that now yeah. that... I was the, the contest Shetner's really only existed early in the process yeah. like right. w- for the during the first season in particular they really were at odds a lot and it was because all the fan positive fan response was, was the going to way. Yeah. Yeah. and And Nimoy didn't really give a shit. And Shatner's the main guy, right?
1: He's supposed to be the front, the headliner. Right.
2: He was the pretty face, you know, the Meanwhile, Nimoy's making
1: the cover of all the magazines. Nimoy was the huge sex symbol who had to, like, sneak out of restaurants to the back door. Otherwise, he'd be mobbed. He would get invites to go to,
2: you know, appearances, and and Shatner wouldn't and that kind of thing. And once they resolved that, once Shatner, like, had a chat with Roddenberry and basically told him, you just got to calm down about it, man. Like, you, you're you on a good show. Yeah. Everybody's winning here. This could get cancelled next season for all you know. Like, just enjoy it. And he did, and and then it just kind of gradually went away and they became best buddies. He
1: seemed year. to learn that lesson of just enjoy it because, I mean, he went on to make TJ Hooker and Rescue 911, and then a decade of Priceline commercials, and he didn't seem upset by any of that one well, iota. And
2: Roddenberry proved right, too, because <coughs> after the show went off the air after season three... Shatner went back to doing like summer stock theater yeah. with his dog, living in his truck with his dog, and that kind of thing. And I think that's probably why he later in his career really did appreciate the easy money of something like Priceline. Yeah, <laughs> because doesn't do it get that good for most work actors. And
1: make uh, you know five hundred grand, a million dollars for one
0: ad. Yeah. Uh, one more thing I want to get into, and then we should start reviewing these movies, but. For me, if it came down to this terrible crucible where you had to choose between Star Wars and Star Trek, I would probably choose Star Wars. I wouldn't be happy about it. I would choose Star Wars. But, really? Uh, I'm
1: not surprised at all. I would have guessed you'd be
0: Star Wars for sure. <laughs> I would need to more hear more about the parameters of this before I could choose. <laughs> well, if you could only have one thing, you could like... For the rest of your life you can either watch Star Trek shit or Star Wars. Shit. Now is
1: the other one wiped from existence for everyone, or just I can't
0: ever see it again personally. For you personally, I guess. Yeah, for okay. the sake of this argument. Fair enough. Um, anyway, yeah, you're not eradicating <laughs> it. You're not eradicating it for everybody else as well. <laughs> there you go. You would have it's to miss out on something. But that's interesting the parallels and the basically the opposite that that happens simultaneously with this like I find that Star Wars is a very World War Two aerial sort of aesthetic to the action, right? right? And Star Trek, as we mentioned, is much more of the submarine battles, mm-hmm. right? Where the, there's the more suspension, more, more sort of battle of will. The
2: stakes are yeah. put, put at the forefront and the dynamics are in the background, sort of.
0: And so, like, it's similar but different. And then I like that, like, Star Wars is, for the most part, a pretty nihilistic universe in a lot of ways. The universe is always, you know... The power struggles being wrestled with, people are planets are being exploded, uh, and the portrayal of the future that Gene Roddenberry puts forth with Star Trek is very positive in a lot of ways. Not that there isn't terrible shit in it, but where we are as a people seems to have progressed in a very positive way.
1: Most of the terrible shit was injected from outside of Roddenberry, but go on. Uh, well, that's I digress. I
0: mean, like. Basically, the future in Star Wars is that we're still fighting each other over petty power issues, well, and we're not getting along to explore the universe. I take issue with you
2: saying it's in the future. Yeah, it's, been a it's, ago, it's a long time little... ago. It's <laughs> a long time ago. I apologize. It's fun. Nerds, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you see what I'm saying. Like I think yeah. that there's a percentage of even though Star Wars is a very fun universe, there's much more nihilism in Star Wars, and there's much more hope in Star Trek, mm-hmm. and that's the thing that I think I really, really lock into and like. About mm-hmm. Star Trek, personally, is that it's it's a much more hopeful thing. I
1: agree. Yeah, uh, it's. Um, Do you want yeah, an answer on this now? Well, if you can Which? get it,
2: I
0: mean, I, I know it's like a it's a crucible. Answer, no, mine's so really sure. a,
1: an easy answer. But you were sorry I interrupted you uh, before ahead. I gave an answer on that. I was just going to say uh, it, it's there's also not just a hopefulness, but a, uh, uh, Star Trek is a little bit more meritocritous. I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> But you can. there's upward mobility in Star Trek. There's hope for the individual too, right? In Star Wars, you're either born a dirt farmer or you happen to be the one in a billion dirt farmer who's Luke Skywalker, right? In everybody's royalty, there's a caste system. There's no bettering of human beings. Like you said, everything's been the same way it is for 10,000 years. It's, yeah. it's very medieval and feudal in that way. Star Trek is about... We don't have money.
0: We don't have a It's lot about of personal enlightenment, it's about
1: society becoming more enlightened and more advanced and more evolved and getting to address the bigger problems and questions and instead of, do I have enough schmeckles to pay for the rent this month? Yeah. Right. And uh, if you work really hard
2: and make it all important, you can be James T. Kirk and run a starship. Yeah,
1: exactly. Or you can be a Ferengi holographic pimp. And run a bar on a space station. You can do whatever you want. Sounds pretty sweet. Sounds pretty sweet. Star
0: Trek also has the distinction of feeling much more genuinely like science fiction to me than Star Wars, where Star Wars it is much feels more space It feels plausible. Capacity, right? Yeah. Uh, and there's, you know, allegories, unsubtle allegories. I remember an original series episode where the planets, where people are right white on half of their bodies and black on the other. And yeah. whether it's the left or right side, is the whole racial, like, really yeah. subtly snuck in there. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> but, uh, I think but that's it, a third season episode. There's still, they're <laughs> still, like, attempting to, you know, there's a moral, there's, they're, they're making a statement about where we're going or, or, you know.
1: There's also an attempt to link it to reality. There's no magic in Star Trek. There's, uh, Star Trek is also overtly atheistic. Even in the '60s version of the show, anytime no, no they run into right. a being that's that calls mm. itself a god, right? Like, it's in humanist. It's humanist. I would say that con- compared to the rest of 1960s culture, that was about as as much atheism as you could put on as TV. As you could get on TV is yeah. the notion yeah. that you would run into a super being that it actually was Apollo, yeah. and you would go, "Oh yeah." Gods and yeah. roll your eyes. There was a time them. when right. that was a thing there was a time it, when know. people believed in such nonsense. People
0: just slit each other's throats for money, and now I yeah. don't have money. So, uh, did you answer which did, Star Wars or Star Trek? Which, uh, it, well,
1: no, I wasn't going. I said I wanted to say before I get to our answer. Oh, okay. You said you were ready with your answer. You, <laughs> well, well I know. I just I, I wanted to make sure I didn't miss it. Okay. Mm. Well, well, since you since it.
2: you mentioned the uh, the atheism slash humanism side of Star Trek, I'll maybe touch on that. To, the reason it's an easy decision for me is because Star Trek is a huge reason why I am the way I am. Star Wars is not. Right. Um, I just recently, I've been rewatching TNG, like, you know, while I exercise and that kind of thing lately, and I watched the episode The Outcast from season four, and you probably won't remember what it's about. It's about a society with no gender. Mm-hmm. They're...
1: Riker fucks one of, them, like of course. <laughs> Yeah, Riker falls in First love. First things fucking last, ladies and gentlemen. Riker fucks. Just yeah. remember, every
0: exit is also an entry. <laughs>
1: that's right. He <laughs> falls for uh,
2: a genderless thing that prefers gender. It feels female. Right. And in, in their society, um, that's frowned upon. Them. Like you get sent off to a hospital and they redo your brain and fix you right. and and you're all the happier for it when, when it's done. So of course it ends tragically because he tries to bust her out and by the time he gets to her they've redone her brain and they can't be together. And she gives this impassioned speech at one point about and it's obviously about
1: homosexuality. This was the early nineties that was don't a huge ask, issue. don't tell was a big issue. Yeah, a was just passing a when that
2: was written. Yeah, it was a huge deal. And I would have been 11 probably when it aired, so that was completely lost on me. But I remember being so uh, frustrated by when she talks about, like, my love is no less than your love. Yeah. And the episode had a huge effect on me, even though I didn't know what it was actually about. I haven't seen it somehow since then. So I watched it the other day and realized that that aspect of Star Trek is probably hugely responsible for why I am empathetic the way I am in life why I um take so easily to things like that that I've seen through metaphor uh and I'm certain that that's shaped me you know because I watched that shit out of Star Trek when I was from the time I was probably six or seven Mm -hmm. our dad was showing it to us and and then TNG ran until I was a teenager yeah so um yeah I have no doubt that that's a big reason why I am the way I am. So Star Trek... Star Wars Star. was just fun. Yeah. We were watching so by Star comparison, it's... We were watching
1: Star Trek when I was six or seven, so you were three or four. Yeah, before I could remember. Sure <clears> I, I thought you awesome. were going to say that that episode was a huge influence on why you have decided to become genderless or something. I was, <laughs> I was starting to be brace myself for some big news here, Jim. No,
2: but being so. that, you know, the, the people that I have in my life... um that maybe has more meaning to me than than some people that that mm-hmm. issue isn't yeah. important to. Um, and then also, you touched on the atheism thing. I'm an atheist, right? and I guarantee it's because I watch Star Trek. Oh, because really? That, you attribute Star Trek to that as well? That worldview, world view, that life view, that philosophy um, makes sense to me because of how it made sense... In the terms that it's laid out in Star Trek, I the idea Star of Trek prioritizing that. humanity over um, over yourself, mm-hmm. like the goals for um, for for what makes humanity flourish, rather than just what makes me flourish. Yeah,
1: I personally wouldn't prior wouldn't uh, say that my atheism is is due to Star Trek, but it certainly Informal, Star right? Trek helped breed an environment in which my personal age of reasoning came at like 11 when I just sort of figured out that the biblical stories made no sense and more importantly the modern teachings well, of that the they church were, just were antithetical mm-hmm. to sense yeah. it wasn't so much the bible's not real as the things my youth group leader and minister are telling me are strange yeah. strange, and beyond strange to the point where if they're true I want nothing to do with this god asshole because mm-hmm. he sounds like sort of like a, a knob yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: so Star Trek versus Star Wars, before we get into super deep into philosophical yeah, <laughs> theory.
1: I would I would take Star Trek, yeah. even though pound for pound, because if you just count the good three theatrical Star Wars movies. <laughs> yeah. See, there's where you go. You take all the the canon or old canon of Star Wars, whatever, all the movies, cartoons. There's a lot of Star Wars too. Yeah. But there are four good movies. Yeah. And the rest of it's more or less Disposable. Some of the, some of the stuff is okay. Whereas there are, there's got to be pushing a thousand hours of Star Trek television. Well, there'd movies. be more than that because there's 79 original series, 200 and some of, or almost 200
2: episodes of Next Gen. Uh, another 200. And another 200, some 200 DS9. of DS9. Almost two hundred. of But those are Voyager. like forty-six
1: minutes each. We're getting close to a thousand hours, is what I'm saying. I but then all the animated it up, but series. We can movies. maybe look it up and get back to you with an exact number of hours of extant Star Trek. I'm curious, but no. but I, before I forget, I knowledge. earlier said, oh, yeah, Clinton was writing "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" when that episode. Was, that episode, if it was season four, would have been ninety-one. 91 George or two. Bush Senior was president, so yeah. I obviously don't know what I was talking
0: about. But I wanted
1: to correct that myself. Right? I forgive you.
0: There you go. Uh, so we have two for Star Trek, one for Star Wars. Um, yes, I Women. guess I guess Star Trek wins. Uh, <laughs> is there anything you guys want to say by way of introduction before we get into Star nope. Trek: The Motion Picture? I'll
1: just finish that. What I was starting to say was that pound for pound, those three movies are really enjoyable. You know how much I love Star Wars, uh, right? We've <laughs> talked about Star Wars. I have apparently Larry told me the honor of the longest single rank and review. Review Mm -hmm. when I railed against the Phantom Menace for like forty six. minutes. Not surprised for the length of a full episode of Star Trek. I feel like I've heard the review probably seven times. Yeah, you maybe have. Of it, you maybe have. So yeah, but no. In way of introduction, I love Star Trek. I love these movies. I particularly love the core of them, which I consider to be two, three, four. We'll be talking about that as we go, and again at the end, I'm sure. But I feel like finally. All of this potential that was there in the world that Roddenberry had created for the television series came along, and the right producers got their hands on it, and they finally cracked the code of how to make great Star Trek. Right. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, I'm ready to
0: go. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Um, Just for the record, the six Star Trek movies we're going to review is Star Trek The Motion Picture. Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home, Star Trek Five: The Final Frontier, and Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country. No notes. That all came out of my brain.
1: Travel forward with us, three hundred years into the future to confront the greatest mystery ever to threaten mankind. We are aboard a huge starship called the Enterprise. This is the return of Captain Kirk. An alien the object of unbelievable
0: destructive power is less than three days away from this planet. Mr. Spock. I offer my services as science officer. Dr. McCoy, Scotty,
1: and joining them on their mission, Commander Will Decker and Navigator Ilea.
0: I'm sorry. Did you left Delta IV? Oh, that you didn't even say goodbye. So say what you will about Star Trek promotion picture. They definitely rolled out Hollywood's red carpet for Star Trek. Robert Wise was not some random pick. Robert Wise was a pedigree director. He's responsible for one of my favorite classic horror movies, The Haunting, the adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson big fan Andromeda Strain yeah Yeah. yeah. Uh, Side all Story the West Side Story is a huge winner musical that. best picture winner uh, this guy is no slouch but just because you're an amazing director doesn't necessarily <laughs> yeah. mean that you were born to do a Star Trek or that movie.
2: you've ever seen it
0: well <laughs> my impression and again I come in Would as not think? a fan is that this guy saw 2001 and sort of said me too Right, like He wanted to make a beautiful science fiction epic spectacle. Mm-hmm. And since they were consciously changing the tone of the movie, uh, of the original TV show, pardon me, that seemed like the right direction to go. And in true-to-form, especially when you take a TV show to a, a film, you have to up the stakes. It's no longer just one adventure on the bridge of the Enterprise. The world is at stake. Everything has to get bigger. So I get the intention, but I, I will admit... That I found the pace of this to be very, very slow, Mm -hmm. and that I was confused and maybe even irritated by the fact that, frankly, the two main characters, the two main characters of the movies, are none of the main characters of the core cast of Star Trek. I suffer from insomnia. I have a really hard time sleeping most of the time. And we watched Star Trek The Motion Picture at my friend's house, at Paxton's house, where we're recording this now. And for the last 20 minutes of this movie... could not keep your eyes open? I was having a real fucking hard time <laughs> keeping my eyes open. And I rewatched it again at home because I wanted to get clarity. Okay, on
1: good. Because the last 20 minutes is the movie. That's the... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? There had been some whiskey drinking, and if I recall, the
0: thermostat was it pretty hot. It was hot. It was and hot and it. swelteringly hot. It was hot. That's true. I'm, but you'd I'm, also
2: watch two hours of Star Trek One, which is a...
0: I don't fall asleep (laughs) during movies, and I don't fall asleep in other people's houses. Like, it it, it was pretty unprecedented. (laughs) And I watched it again, like I said, at my house. I felt a little dopey while I was watching it. But in the interest of being brutally honest, I would at this point only recommend Star Trek The Motion Picture as a sleep aid. I, I don't have a lot of affection for it. I mean, there is, you know, the Enterprise porn that we talked about when we watched the movie, where you get yep. the slow pan around the Enterprise. Yep. And if I grew up loving the Enterprise, then you'd give a shit. Then I would give a shit. But yep. uh, I, 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 like. I just wanted them to get to the ship, you know. No. Uh, I, I like what they were going for. I like the presentation, but mm. this doesn't feel like Star Trek to me. It just does. Well,
2: they're not on a trek yet.
0: Through, so no, I didn't mention plot but I think I've mentioned enough that I can safely put this blood soap ball in your guys sure, story. fair enough
1: now <laughs> just let me let me frame this for a second it's 1979 Yep, 8 wasn't it 8? it was released in 79 oh, okay <laughs> uh, there is a whole generation of people who grew up 10 years earlier watching Star Trek VHS's don't exist the reruns were in syndication but people hadn't seen Star Trek for a long time there was a nation of people out there who grew up loving the Enterprise and wanted to see it on the screen. <clears throat> so uh, you're, I know you don't feel that way, but there was a, lot a, reason, people did. There's a reason that that movie made more money than any other Star Trek movie to date, right? right? Uh, adjusted for modern day by a long shot, right? A lot of people wanted to go see that movie. A lot of people didn't want to go see it again, but they wanted to see it the first time because right. they wanted to see the Enterprise. Secondly, we watched, in preparation for this review, the director's cut. Which it is has longer. That huge, long sleep-inducing sec- section where they're flying into the gas cloud uh, is 12, 11 minutes There's about longer. 12
2: minutes of footage in the movie that, that was rightfully all that kind of on the stuff.
1: cutting room floor when it first hit the wall so I typically
0: wouldn't have seen that unless we were watching and, the yeah and it's okay. possible we we'll treated you to the <laughs> longer <laughs> version. and you
1: it's agree. debatable you know we maybe I maybe regret that decision because if we're stacking the movies and, and we're specifically not talking we got into this when we did Apocalypse Now Redux right where it altered my position my ranking was affected by the fact that we were rating the Redux version and not the real version well and I can
0: it, credit this as the director's cut so there's no confusion among the trophies. <laughs>
1: It would probably change my rank. That right. extra eleven minutes of footage might—I don't know. It would depend on the. Day. It wouldn't
2: for me because, like I said, this movie exists in the last fifteen twenty minutes right. of the screenplay. But so it's over two hours. But so you, you have, have to sit there to get there. Yeah. Right?
1: <laughs> yeah. The, you literally, the movie's two hours and twenty-five minutes or something, right? Or two,
0: is it two hours and fifteen? It's. Know. Two hours too long. So (laughs) you guys are on board. Like, I don't mean to be super mean about it. And, like I say, I praise the ambition. And it was like, you know. At the time, the idea of these space scopes and, and these like scenes of spaceships were, were not as commonplace in the theaters as we see now. I said the same thing when we talked about 2001, all those slow pans over the spaceships. I think when you were first sitting down in the theater, when it was a brand new movie, you'd be drooling over that shit, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we're not as impressed by that now. I think that no. part of the problem might just be time itself. But,
1: but part of the problem is somebody who has done a lot of editing. The that that movie that most of the pacing problems of that movie could could be solved by re-editing it i bet there are some fan edits of the motion picture that are far more digestible and uh, one of the big problems with the movie and why it is one is on the bottom end of all of three of our lists i'm sure when we get there it'll be toward the bottom end of the list for everybody uh is that it isn't a movie script right it's Jaren, you said it has elements of Gene Roddenberry's script that wasn't even originally a Star Trek. It script. was a
2: film feature script It just <clears throat> he just tried to sell it as something else.
1: Yeah, and it also has elements of a f- script that was written for Phase 2, the the proposed but failed uh, C- CBS revival show that they were going to do a new run where the Enterprise was on a new 5-year mission. Yeah. And what the episode that my understanding is that the episode that was going to be the pilot for that was taken the Decker character, the one who's sort of in competition with Kirk for command of the Enterprise, was—was was he to be the new captain or a new first officer for Kirk? I don't know the specifics. He comes of out one those of one of the scripts. Several of those older scripts and characters were mine to make this movie that ends up feeling like there's enough story with the whole V'ger. Right? We haven't outlined the plot, right? But there's enough I story there yeah. to fill uh, a
0: 45-minute episode of television, and it's two hours and 12 minutes long. The plot is basically a familiar thing, especially when we're talking about the movies. A heretofore unknown but ultra-powerful force shows up out of nowhere from the universe, seeming to demand or need something, and there's a riddle that needs to be solved, and everybody's And, and the first. Enterprise is the only ship in the quadrant. And, uh, yeah, we have, I can't even, this is, here's a bad sign. What's the name of the main character, the guy who's just been put, on, uh, put in charge? Captain Decker. Decker, yeah. Yeah. Uh, again I I can't even keep the guy's name like he to me is the main character of this movie his arc is probably the most full of any of the characters he and this bald chick his his
2: (laughs) beginning and his end constitute more of a journey I think than than Kirk's
0: and that decision for me is confusing I think that you guys talking about the fact that it was mine from a different screenplay might actually crack the code on that for me because they couldn't kill Kirk Right? So they couldn't put Kirk in that role. Well, and there's right.
1: stuff in, in this screenplay, to give you an idea of how there were poor decisions made throughout the making of the movie as far as what to cut and what not to cut, they shoot all of this V'ger footage where they're flying through the being. And meanwhile, there are interesting little character details about Decker that don't make it to the screen. Decker is the son of of Kirk's best friend or one of his close friends Commodore Decker who's in the show he's he's a character in one of the big one of the best episodes of the series called the Doomsday Machine and Decker uh, Commodore Decker ends up after having some faltering uh, courage, very selflessly sacrificing himself to save the Enterprise, etc, etc. Right. Well, not friend. really. <laughs> well, He s- sort of dies in disgrace after his whole crew is marooned on a planet
2: and dies. He,
1: that's, he at least attempts to die courageously and he yeah, teaches he them the vans. lesson of how to kill the thing without inadvertently yes. solves the riddle for them. That, that's by the way. Anyway, uh, that sort of thing might help Decker make sense to a viewer as like, okay, so this is the son of Kirk's old friend. That's right. all you need to know. That would take two seconds to inject that into the into the movie, and suddenly we might understand a bit more about why yeah. Deckers is in there in the first place.
2: Of flashy, flashy lights and mist and more lights, well, and,
0: and that feels like at least a little wiggle of fan service. And like I, I know that you can overdo fan service, but mm-hmm. basically we have the characters from the original Star Trek TV show in an adventure unlike anything that they ever been in before, to which they were supporting players in. Mm-hmm. Right, they get the beginnings of arcs, except for Spock, but they don't really get to finish them. Yeah. Like at the
2: beginning of the movie, uh, Kirk's dealing wrestling with old age, yeah. feeling like he's over the hill. That's potentially interesting for a but character. But he doesn't
1: get that story arc really until Star Trek Two. Yeah, when it it's
2: reintroduced in exactly the same way.
1: But they decide in Star they Trek Two, but it but it as, goes to the end of the film, as um, is so often the case with Star Trek. The only core character of the of the main trio of Kirk Spock McCoy. Spock is a main character in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Right. Right? V'ger speaks to him That's across right. time and space. He comes back from his Vulcan studies and rejects all Vulcan philosophy. Yeah. Because he has to go and talk to this V he realizes like I have feelings about this. I can't accept this honor of completing and the this plot, the, training because, look, I'm having feelings about this being across the galaxy and I have to go chase that and he actually has a character journey. He dies and is reborn in a certain way figure. or just about dies where he faces infinity. All yeah. of these things happen to Spock and all Kirk does really is have a cock measuring contest with a guy who There's ends Baker. up dying and stand yeah. around. And uh, Spock also...
2: The, the climax turns on Spock's understanding of V'ger mm-hmm. and as was common in the TV show his strengths it all it all sort
1: of comes to bear for Kirk to then decide what to do right mm-hmm. so and probably that's... the best scene in the movie is Spock in recovery after he's encountered and mind-melded with V'ger and he's just waking up and Kirk is talking to him in sickbay and Spock is very emotional he's smiling he and laughing yeah. and the interesting thing about that scene is that Is it you who told me this, Jen? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Nimoy and Shatner made that decision for Spock to be emotional there together. Oh, didn't. Yeah, well, Wise didn't know fucking dick about (laughs) the characters, right? He hadn't watched Star Trek before he got the job. Yeah, they would get together in their trailer and, like, decide how to change the script. And Nimoy and Kirk Kirk were bored. And I think Shat... uh, Or Nimoy and Shatner. I think they realized they were making an utterly boring movie that didn't have anything to do with Kirk and Spock. And they're like, we can have this interesting little arc between the two of them where spock's eyes are open to the whole universe for a minute and his reaction is very emotional which makes sense because spock's half human he spends most of his energy repressing emotion right he's the most repressed guy ever he
2: realizes how lucky he is to be able to have access to emotion whether he chooses to deny it or not it's within his ability and all of that stuff is about three
1: layers under the surface of what is more or less a boring movie but to finish up the plot synopsis we never fi- finish <laughs> we get to the end the super being that's threatening the earth turns out to be Voyager 6, six which right now is or it is a, an earth probe that gets sent out in our time or in the late 20th century yeah there was no Voyager 6 there actually. was no Voyager 6 but Voyager is right now leaving the solar system yeah. as we speak it's the furthest object a, from here and in 79 yeah. was it was assumed I suppose that the Voyager Program would have a bunch. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it, you know, we sent this machine out. It encountered a race of machines, became super intelligent, and came home to contact its creator, which uh, to return all that information. That's right. And in trying to complete its mission, threatens to wipe out human civilization. But they don't. Then Decker uh, fucks the probe, and (laughs) it has a giant space orgasm. Everything up till that point in the movie is
2: basically the same concept. I forget the name of the episode, but there's an episode in the original series that's basically that same thing. This probe that has collected all the data the, it possibly can. It's called can. the changeling. Is that the one? Yeah. And it wants to return the information. Yeah. So they just sort of grab that. I but made it bigger. Yeah. Yeah, and then add it on what doesn't happen in that episode, as far as I recall, where they have this theoretical explore, exploration of what a machine life form is missing that it allow, that would allow it to continue to learn. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty hokey, but Kirk's like, what V'ger needs is a human quality, mm-hmm. our ability to leap beyond logic. It's trying to learn. so It's a child. It's got, that's why it wants to merge with its creators, so that it can be more than just what it is, yeah. and be able to explore dimensions and that, keep learning and blah, blah, blah. It
1: recognizes that one of the things that the carbon units, which is what it calls us... One of the things that the carbon units do is to merge with one another, and it feels the need to merge in order to... It understands everything else in the universe except what it means to become one with some other being. Right. So it wants to do that. It wants to get jiggy with it. Now, if if you need any final nail in the coffin of why Decker shouldn't be in the movie, is at the end, like I said, he solves the problem by, having, by joining physically with... V'ger's avatar. Viger creates this human out of Ilea is a lieutenant on the Enterprise who's introduced because, God forbid, we use a character from Star Trek, exactly. right? We better introduce some new ones. She's kidnapped by V'ger made into his avatar and his sort of probe, and we see, we interact with V'ger through her, and so do all of the crew members. Decker wins by fucking... Ilea. Yeah. why isn't that Kirk? That's what Kirk does, yeah. because right? He by fucks this his point. way across the galaxy. Is my point is that here you have Star Trek being solved with uh, with some chivalry and a deep dick, and, and it's it not Kirk doing it. Roddenberry kill
0: Kirk, right? They probably yeah. in their hearts wanted a franchise, and the whole thing would be incredibly different if they started the show by killing off Kirk. I'm not saying I they should see- kill Kirk. I'm yeah. just
1: saying Kirk didn't even get to do any James Bonding. He didn't get to have any. Love making. Well, the only Decker real contribution
2: that. he makes to the whole movie is at the end. He's the one who says, "What Vider needs yeah. is this human quality." It want and, and, well, and, and he, he wants so to merge. So then Decker says, the original like, I'll go merge with her."
1: And Kirk, <laughs> Kirk, throughout the original series, is the voice saying that in the the classic cock uh, cock versus Spurk, Kirk versus <laughs> Spock <laughs> dynamic of human uh, versus logic. Right. Yeah, they all become greater than the southern parts. That's right. And Kirk is always arguing that it's human flaws that make humans that we'll win the able day. to do the thing, blah, blah, blah. And yep. that's, Roddenberry, that's Roddenberry's philosophy all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. And, hey, it works. It makes for some good TV and for some It saves movies. the day at
0: the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah um i keep going back to the 2001 influence that's what i kind of feel like this was trying to be a loftier true blue sci-fi star trek it
1: was certainly an overt repudiation of the zippy star warsy flying around and you know really high uh, wasn't much of a trick
0: they wanted to blow your mind. They didn't want to necessarily just blow shit up.
1: They they recognized that one of the things that people loved about the original series was that it was intellectual. Sometimes right. it wasn't always intellectual, and sometimes when it tried to be intellectual, it was stupid. The gear. episode you mentioned where they the, they run into the beings who are half black and half yeah, it's white. basically yeah. uh, uh, sneeches. Is that the doctor's? <laughs> yeah. yellow-bellied yeah. sneeches. It's basically sneeches in space, yeah. and other times when it tries to be high-minded you get some you know pretty incredible stuff. In well, Star Trek. I
0: think that the pendulum was just sort of swinging to the other extreme. We have the crazy wacky extreme of the TV show to the sort of more moderate sort of serious sci-fi of the motion picture. Mm-hmm. Halfway I think we're going to meet in the middle when yeah. we come to part 2.
1: I think well, I think neither Star Trek nor Star Wars are science fiction personally. You right. said that you have a hard time putting Star Wars in the science fiction camp. I say Star Wars is plain is clearly just space, space fantasy. fantasy right. It might as well be Lord of the Rings is just set in space with ships instead of instead of riding around on wolves and swords, all of that sort of thing. Star Trek is well the show in particular was pitched as wagon train to the stars. Right. And that's what it is. It's a space western with elements of sci fi hidden in it because there was no way to overtly put science fiction on TV.
0: But generally, what I like about Star Trek is that they sneak the sci-fi in. I mean, yeah, we're about explosions, but we might sneakily try to blow your mind underneath. Yeah, uh,
1: it, there's definitely sci-fi in Star Trek, but there's almost no sign. There's no science fiction in Star Wars. Star Trek, though, is just sort of a matrix in which sometimes good sci-fi stories are told, and other times they're just very. That, you know, especially by the time we get to the next generation, but even in the early stories, they're often just uh, fairly simple morality tales, right, or allegorical stories, right? That sort in of the thing. end, it,
0: it's a huge universe, really. It can be used to tell any kind of story, but typically I associate it more with sci-fi. I know that that we're going to get into much more familiar sort of action space territory right away here, but... It feels more sci-fi how to yeah. me than Star Wars well, ever will. It,
1: there was no staff of writers, right? They took submissions from all sorts of people. And so you can almost look at the original series as like a, a weekly <coughs> sci-fi magazine where people take, I'm sure a lot of writers took concepts they had for other stories and rewrote Made them it to use Star Trek, Trek characters. And so depending on the writer, some weeks you would have a really sci-fi heavy episode. And some weeks, you'd have Balance of Terror. Mm. There was a submarine fight in space. And it was a great episode, but there's no science fiction happening. It's just happening it in just space. It just
0: happens to be, yeah. yeah. Is there anything else you guys want to say about the motion picture?
1: Yeah, you? I just want to throw out my theory
2: for why it is terrible. Okay. <laughs> sh- I was
0: expecting more fight back in this, so I'm actually kind of happy. <laughs> I think it
2: just... It's terrible in context Star Trek has has six movies. But. Star Trek, even now, like in the rebooted universe that exists on on uh, in cinemas sadly, mm-hmm. is it's most terrible when it's trying to serve masters outside of what everyone who's created good Star Trek knows makes it the best, which is the characters, right. the, the chemistry, the uh, utilizing the characters in the way that they've already been proven to be best used. Right. And, some, and this movie is guilty of completely disregarding that mm-hmm. for the most part. Kirk, Spock, McCoy have like two scenes. And, and when they do, yeah. the movie comes to life a little bit barely yeah.
1: like they do their best but they the stuff they have to and say and even is then ridiculous. it only comes to life for people who already know and care about the characters somebody who'd never seen Star yeah, Trek it gets those, re-animated. those scenes are not going to go oh this is getting interesting They're all, those scenes get interesting because we know those characters and because those we just stop attempted. falling
2: asleep at that point while we watch it
1: like, right. oh this chemistry is, is this reminds me of Star Trek or something these <laughs> are the people we came here to see that's right yeah, yeah. anyway I just wanted to make
2: that point Because I feel like it's very, like, the same could be said for why the new movies are terrible as well. well.
0: Beyond the darkness, beyond the human evolution, is Khan, a genetically superior tyrant, exiled to a barren planet, banished by a starship commander he is destined to destroy, left for dead, He has survived.
1: I'll chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares Maelstrom and round
0: Perdition's flames before I give him up. There she is. There she is.
1: not enough
0: against their shields. The base of Scotty, I need warp speed in three minutes or we're all dead. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me, marooned for all eternity, buried alive so star trek the motion picture was a financial success i mean i think that the The biggest of any of them the critics were split on it the fans tended to lean to my side but there are the movie does have its defenders but i think that everybody maybe silently behind the scenes might have agreed that they strayed a little too far from formula and like i said in the previous review i think star trek 2 the wrath of khan is sort of this pendulum swinging back the other way So much so that they mind their villain from the original series. Uh, Chekhov, who is a Which they should have
1: done for the first movie.
0: Yeah. Chekhov, who is now a member of a different crew, goes down on an away mission, and uh, they encounter this, looks like a cargo ship or tanker just parked in the middle of what's supposed to be a dead moon or something, and they discover there are survivors on board, Mm -hmm. led by this man, Khan who is familiar to Chekhov. He's from Fantasy Island. Even (laughs) though Chekhov wasn't in the episode where Khan... Chekhov hadn't
1: been introduced in the show yet when Space Seed was made. Well,
0: I'll let you guys address Space Seed. I'm going to deal with the wrath of (laughs) Khan. But after being abandoned here at what was once a lush and and very healthy world, a few months after they arrived, there was a catastrophe, and no one bothered to check on them, apparently. So they've been living a hard, brutal existence for a lot of years. And it's all Kirk's fault. So, with the help of some absolutely terrifying, when I was in the single-digit age category, by the way, brain bugs, he starts infiltrating Starfleet to get his hands on Kirk and let the punishment begin. The lofty feel of science fiction and deepness that we had throughout the motion picture is gone, and what we get instead is explosions, an amazing Klingon performance from Christopher Lloyd, and a glistening, proud chest of Ricardo (laughs) Montalbán, and the fans were pleased, and so was Larry. That's right. (laughs) Big fan. Wrath of Ratham Khan. No, no, you're not gonna hear me talking shit about Wrath of Khan. <laughs> well, that you're, shit's you're not giving it
1: happen. just slightly too much credit, okay and that is that Christopher Lloyd's not in the second film. I this change up, in Star Two Trek you're talking about—you just got excited because they feel like they're the same story. They're yeah. all part yeah, yeah, of the same say movie The arc. same improvement yeah. over one is true of three. Yeah. Yeah. It's all the of thing. the original Star Trek can be boiled down to two, three, four, right? If someone says, I want to know what Star Trek's mm, about, I don't know. hold on now. If someone says, I want to know what Star Trek's about, and I only have an afternoon, right. watch Star Trek's 2, 3, 4. You meet and know and care about the characters. You follow them on a journey. It, it takes you somewhere that ends in a, in a sort of good place. I would say that's a, at least a valid approach to take. What we're hitting here at Star Trek 2 is a change of the guard. Star Trek One and part of why it was such a disaster was that Roddenberry was still very much fingers in. Right. He was not hands on. Control was being wrestled in. Gross. <laughs> Control was being wrestled away from Roddenberry by Paramount. Roddenberry had, had more pull with when Desilu, what is, uh, was was producing for CBS, and now Paramount Feature Films is running Star Trek. They're trying to wrestle away control from him because he's going crazy. He doesn't want any interpersonal conflict. People can't have problems between them. It's the future. So, you know, when you're writing, nobody can be at odds with one another. What? How do you write a show like that? And this is a concept that later he would push back into the next generation in 1986 when that show went into production. But at the time, studios pushing Roddenberry away. And even though the movie was a big financial success, it was a critical... Flop, even at the time, right? Enter Harv Bennett, executive producer of Star Trek II. He wrote the the original story outline. He fought tooth and nail with Roddenberry over what he said was an important change Star Trek had to make, which was, this is a military organization. People need to not be wearing multicolored uniforms where the enemy can identify you from 8,000 meters with a telescope and know exactly who, who the you admiral is, right? Yeah. This is, it's a, yes, it's a peace-keeping navy, but this is the space navy. Yeah, it's they not, had to act like they're in the military. Exactly. And this is a story where, even though there are high-minded concepts, Star Trek was always compelling because of those three characters and because of the character drama, right? The stories are, the in the original show, the memorable ones even have... Interesting concepts in them, but it's the uh, it's the interaction between those three characters that sort of just has you has me anyway. Just sort of smiling as I watch those episodes. It's pleasant to watch those guys interact. We feel like we know them. Harve Bennett said, obviously, let's put them like you said back on the screen for right. fuck's sake. There are our characters. He also had to be the one who said,
2: also, this is a Star Trek movie. James T Kirk is the main character
1: of Star Trek so the story better fucking turn on something that happens to Kirk right. and on something that happens to Kirk and Spock like spoiler alert we, we just grazed or uh, brushed against the plot but Spock sacrifices his life at the end of the movie to save the Enterprise teaching Kirk, you know interesting we mentioned Galileo 7 because I feel like that's when Spock actually first faced the Kobayashi Maru yeah. right? right they were dead in orbit he f- vents the plasma their only way to land safely on the just dumb fucking luck gamble that someone might see it. And the Enterprise happens to just see it because they've got their sensors on maximum looking backward as, as they're being forced to leave the planet f- to do other things and <clears throat> abandon the search for Spock right. and his shuttle. They're, they're leaving at space normal speed, which is as slow as the possibly. ship can possibly fucking go. Yeah. Right? And Kirk's disobeying orders in that way, he's bending the rules. So Spock already faced the Kobayashi Maru. At the end of Star Trek 2, Spock tells Kirk, what do you think of my solution to the Kobayashi Maru, which is Starfleet's test that commanders take to face a no-win scenario. You've done everything Sometimes right, the and the ship's still going to yeah. die. And you have to continue to function to the last moment. Yeah. Show us what you got. Face your own mortality, etc. Kirk, like this is all buried in the same movie. It's full of such great stuff. Kirk cheats on this test when he's at Starfleet Academy. Now he's teaching this test hypocritically. Right. He's still a boy, right? We meet Kirk's son in this movie. And Kirk, I argue that James T. Kirk is not a man. He's a captain of a starship, but he's not... He doesn't step into his true manhood until the end of Star Trek II when he faces the Kobayashi Maru, finally. And he faces... Real the, loss. He the faces the loss of his best friend. And soon, the loss of his son, finally, after accepting fatherhood and accepting responsibility for the you know, impulsive behaviors of his youth, the, the new movies just celebrate without ever really addressing <laughs> the downside of Kirk being reckless. But... So much happens to, for Kirk in that movie. So much happens for Spock in that movie. A lot happens, a lot is set up to happen to McCoy in that movie, right? Spock transmits his, cr- transmits his consciousness into McCoy, setting up Spock's later reincarnation. There, there's so much meat on the bone for all three of those people. Other characters get, even little characters like Chekhov and Uhura have, have stuff fun scenes in those movies. Yeah. Uh, the balance is good. It it all Star Trek Two is Star Trek firing on all cylinders. It should have the been Star warp Trek engines one. are fucking tuned like Geordie like and Scotty got together with Chief O'Brien, and maybe even the Hispanic <laughs> American Klingon chick from Voyager, and the four of them like tuned the en- the engines the engine. of Star Trek for a, a week and it's just then, running smooth. I think it speaks so highly of the film that when Star Trek Two
2: opens you're reminded immediately that you needn't have seen anything from Star Trek one. Like it's a sequel, but it doesn't matter at all. Like it really does confirm that rule that a good sequel doesn't require you to have seen the previous movie. Absolutely. And it actually would be better if you hadn't seen one, you Mm -hmm. enjoy two more, I think because when it starts and Kirk has all this like worry about being too old to go gallivanting around the cosmos. It seems more justified. If, you haven't seen one, it feels like the time passage between the show and two earns that more mm-hmm. than the fact that in one, he's in having the same contemplation and by the end of the movie doesn't feel bad about it and then he's right back there at the beginning of two. Right, right. So it really hits the reset button in a way that
1: mm-hmm. kind right. of like coyly says, we know we fucked up with one. It so also jumps a, a bunch of time, right? Like Star Trek Two takes place another eight years or something after Star Trek... One, it, it, what supposedly happens in the timeline... It's five. It's five years? Six or something it, it, like What that. What is supposed to have happened in the timeline is the original series, that five-year mission happened, then the motion picture we've jumped ahead like a decade, I think. Well, they never really decide but yeah, it's something like seven years. Then Kirk wrestles command of the Enterprise back away from Decker and Decker is killed, thus annihilating Kirk's competition and so he takes go the Enterprise on another five-year on mission. Another five-year mission <laughs> right. And then he gets... Uh, Put in, uh, promoted to admiral and goes to work teaching other Starfleet captains, blah, blah, blah. He's, he's like, head of and, Starfleet and operations. And so it's been, like, a Earth, year or something. two after that five-year mission. And, he and that's where we and catch back up to Kirk. He misses the center seat, right? This is when we finally get the story that the first movie only took a tiny nibble at, which is Kirk is facing age, right? And it's interesting to see Kirk face... Uh, <clears throat> his own his age and the fact that he's passed his prime at the same time as he's facing his own coming of age story he's yeah. finally becoming a man by facing things he's run from
0: his whole life mm-hmm. well two and three are sort of my star treks in that i had on a vhs tape when i was a kid tape from television with little splorts to edit out the commercials <laughs> uh part two and three back to back back, to back. back. to and in my head, they are one big movie. And mm-hmm. in a lot of ways they kind of are. Yeah. I mean, they do stand alone. You don't
1: need Star Trek four to feel like the story's over, but if you finish after Star Trek Two, Yeah. And I didn't still have a Star Trek act four ones.
0: But these two movies I would watch a lot. And as part of the strength of this movie, over all the Star Trek movies, there were two scenes that like really definitely imprinted. Chekhov getting the bug in his ear. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh. Fucked me up. Like, that shit was scary. That was a scary sequence. It is one of the only genuinely horror movie sequences I can think of in Star Trek. In the movies, anyway, yeah. Yeah. And, like, it's pretty fucked up. (laughs) Not just
1: that sequence, the whole mind control aspect. He and Captain Tyrell being controlled by those bugs and Biting. Body snatchers It's very thing. body snatchersy, and it's one of the goriest moments in Star Trek Two, is when Terrell commits suicide with the phaser, yeah, and, and his melts. body slowly vaporizes
0: as he screams in agony. It's <laughs> pretty brutal. The other scene that I was going to talk about was what you mentioned was, was Spock's death. I was really really shocked that Spock died, and mm-hmm. I would actually I I got something I got something out of the funeral scene. I I didn't mind watching the the Spock's funeral, scene, funeral for me, but I would fast forward. Often, I remember the scene where Kirk goes down to talk to Spock at the end. It was too upsetting. I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I would fast forward. I would watch the funeral. I would not mm-hmm. watch the
1: death. That whole sequence, both of those scenes, it, really touching. right? The little things that both of those actors who'd been at this point playing those characters for a couple of decades um, had so much to draw on. They had so much in that script to work with, too and yet continue to put their little refining touches on it. Nimoy standing straightening his tunic, that thing that Spock did yeah. because of their ill-fitting right. uniforms in the original series that had a weird zipper in the armpit and they would ride up and and Nimoy yeah. developed the original Picard maneuver where whenever he stood up he would Straighten tug down his, his tunic. Yeah. Spock straightens his tunic and then walks into the clear dividing barrier and just I don't know, you're right. The scene really feels like you're, you're there with someone as he watches his best friend slowly die from radiation poisoning. Not only that, but what do you think about... Let me just throw something out and get your guys' read on it.
2: Do you think Spock, rather than say, at the moment he decides, well, if we send somebody into the chamber who has the expertise to fix the engines... They'll die, but yeah. we'll get out of here. Right. Rather than say that and allow Kirk to make the decision, he just, he just it. Executed it, executes it himself. Does he do that because he knows that that's somehow more generous than ordering someone else to do it? Or does he do it because he somehow thinks Kirk's incapable of doing he knows. that? No, that's because Kirk's fault.
1: Kirk tells him at the beginning when Spock is trying to tell him something on his birthday, as Kirk puts it later, mm-hmm. when he gave him... Uh, A tale of two cities and he's, he's trying to give uh, Kirk the message that well in that gift he's trying to give Kirk the message that he should probably try be, to be doing happy, something right? else He yeah. should be doing something other than what he's doing right but uh, he is they ha- they have the disagreement the fundamental 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 philosophical disagreement about whether or not the the individual is more important than the group right and he knows that uh, in the case of Spock that Kirk would be incapable of that right the good of the one does outweigh the You good mean of that the he many. wouldn't send him For down Kirk, to do it that he wouldn't that he wouldn't sacrifice him he would continue to fight until it was too late to find an ingenious way to cheat yeah that's what i mean Maru. so not only does he it's couldn't his face best friend dying Spock inside
2: yeah. but he knows He's dying because he made this choice as a result of my faults. His knowledge of me and the faults that I bring, Mm -hmm. he's made up for, for me, so that all of us would live. It didn't hit me till the last time when we all watched
1: it. It's a very messianic sacrifice of Spock, who is interestingly reborn in the next movie. Well, that's
0: the thing. I think the other reason that Spock chooses to make himself is that he has this Hail Mary pass, that he might be able to save his own life. Yeah, like Like, nobody
1: when they do the 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 whammy ceremony to put him back, put his brain back in his body at the third movie. No one's done that for hundreds of years. Like it really is. You're right, a long ball. But
0: it's a long ball that nobody else on board has.
1: That's right. I I find it interesting that because we watched them so
2: close together, um, I'd never considered this before. But the little look that uh, Spock does when they're doing the countdown and it's clear that they're not going to get out of range in time. And there's just a moment where he kind of cocks his head before he gets up and goes and leaves the bridge. And normally I just read it as him thinking like, well, I could probably affect that change to the engines and save her. Yeah. i die, but we get out of here. But now I read it as, I could probably make that change. And based on what's going to happen, I might come back from the dead as well. Yeah. Like I, he... He's planned in typical Spock form, he's planned like 19 chess moves ahead (laughs) in one little moment. (laughs) And because you know, like, after the fact, you know where the story goes, that moment can read as that
0: whole equation happening in one moment. Yeah,
1: Spock's hyper
0: fast thinking. Question for the Star Trek fans. Um, And I'm not saying that it was a bad decision or that there were better or worse ones, but why do you think they chose Khan for the villain? Like, Obviously there was a few seasons of Star Trek. Space Seed had been a big episode because
1: Ricardo Montalban is uh, you know he's a heartthrob. People remembered <laughs> the villain as being memorable and he'd been in the interim become very famous for Fantasy Island. Yeah. Funny as that might sound today that show was huge at the time. But
0: as far as I'm concerned Wrath of Khan for me was the last time Montalban was like culturally relevant, yeah. really. And
2: yeah. It's he true. was also the only villain I think in the, from this all three seasons who really should have beat kirk right he had the ability to best him and really should adversary. have
0: We're the adversary
2: uh just through like a minor miscalculation of his which is he doesn't he doesn't bet on the loyalty of kirk's crew
1: right yeah. um, it fits sorry if i'm cutting you off. no
2: just like there there isn't really any other option from the original series that uh, provides a villain who has the ability to beat Kirk believably. Yeah. Yeah. That's
1: all. They're, they're looking for a story that fits with the theme of, of th- coming to terms with the mistakes uh, or your, your past decisions, your past uh, Yeah, their pasts are entwined. Right. He, Kirk, Kirk mean, wronged Kirk, him in a way. Kirk in his youth uh, marooned these people and you said that SETI Alpha 5 had at one point been lush. No, it hadn't. When Kirk, sort of like without trial... Well, he has the ability to. He does, but he arbitrarily maroons uh, Khan and his band of survivors survivors on... uh, It's a habitable planet, but it's barely habitable. It's not super nice. It's not super nice. It's going to be a struggle, and that's addressed in the episode, that they're going to do it, but hey, we're genetic supermen, Mm -hmm. so we can handle it, my people will be fine. Then the orbit of the planet shifts, and it gets... Way worse. Way worse, and they're still able to survive. But Kirk still leaves them on this kind of shithole, and then doesn't come back. Starfleet doesn't come back, so nobody presumably checks Kirk doesn't set anything up. He must have talked about it in his log, but he also must not have filed the electro paperwork to yeah. get a ship to come check on them. once It's actually a kind of the the probably the weakest
2: point. Kirk deserves of the structure the movie hangs coming. on is that nobody. In all of Starfleet, ever checked yeah. in on these genetic supermen who are just hanging out? Because, on Kirk, some because
1: Kirk didn't go write the report. He just walked down the hallway laughing about things. And ah, ha, ha, everything's know. worked out. And that's kind also, of hard to believe. I have to disagree with you that that's the weakest, uh, that that's the weak spot on the structure uh, of Star Trek II. The weak spot is that we today. Have robots that could walk into that radiation chamber and pull that shit out of the dilithium chamber right, right. and fix it, right? Yeah. Twenty years later, Nun and Sung invents data and lore in the Star Trek chronology, right? Yeah. And data could have walked into that room and fixed the radiation, no problem. Right? Lickety split, you could have done it faster than Spock too, probably while singing a tune. <laughs> and so this the sacrifice is in that Michael Okuda sense of everything has to fit together and make sense in the in the quote unquote science, the soft science fiction way, it illustrates the fact that that's there in the movie, and I don't give a shit. Speaks to the strength of the Harv Bennett movies, minus number five because <coughs> I think that one doesn't stand in with the others. But Harv Bennett would, if somebody made that point to him, would say, "I don't care." Yeah. Right? He didn't care about that kind of thing. It's it not dramatically important. important. Star Trek's about yeah. the characters, it's about the drama, it's about the message, it's about all of those things. It, and it, The more you make it about the minutia, uh, you know, only the nerds are going to care and even the nerds are going to be bored if it's about the minutia. And if you don't believe me, try and sit through Voyager. Well, which I mean, was just the techno babble without any of the chemistry or I guess they tried to make it a character drama it just didn't work, but. characters
0: were just lame but the movies avoid largely not completely but that i find all of the star trek shows guilty up to degrees is um, imaginary solutions to imaginary problems yeah it's oh the blah 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 is not working well if we blah 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 the blah 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 then just maybe we'll get out of this one you know well Uh, and here
1: here the solution is not beyond reasoning we know that radiation kills people yeah right the the solution doesn't come in let's make up some new science that only the eggheads will be able to figure out what just happened right right no this character does something very clear and it's a big thing that affects all of the characters that that scene still uh what was this 1982 this was made yeah. right so it's been a long time it's now Almost 2017. Looks
0: pretty good for 1982. It really does. Say. It
1: holds up. We watched it on Blu-ray, and it's we watched all of these on Blu-ray. It looks better than I expected. <coughs> it looks really good. And considering the fact that the budget uh, for Star Trek one was almost $50 million, 1979 dollars, Star Trek two less than $12 million wow. yeah. dollars. Hart Bennett
2: came from TV, so yeah. he had a really scaled-down uh, sense of he 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 looked at what they were going to have and said well then we're going to tell this type of story and made it better for it wrote right. and made the people as recognizable uh as similar to the people of today as you could believe without it becoming counterproductive for a f- story set in the future yeah. something else that one is horrible for mm-hmm. everybody just like sort of plods along in this kind of non-human haze because like Roddenberry believed, people wouldn't have conflict, so we'd yeah. all be these kind of somewhat emotionless automatons with perfect hair and, and uh, pajamas Which on. Isn't it
1: interesting reason. that Roddenberry, a guy who came up with the character of Spock, a, sp- a character that really is good for examining the notion that it's important in order for a person to be healthy, to be emotional, right. Right? and to have inner turmoil and have problems, that he seeks to eradicate them. In humanity, he doesn't want interpersonal conflict. Interpersonal conflict arises from humanity. The only way not to have it is for everyone to become like Spock. And Star Trek almost constantly argues that Spock is mentally unwell. Right? He's the most repressed but he's guy out there, something. and that it, and the times the rest when of Spock is with mental illness. Yeah, the times <laughs> when Spock is most Spock are when he lets his humanity exist. Right, and it seems like Roddenberry in that notion of let's try and get all the conflict out, nobody I don't think he ever wanted to eradicate conflict from the stories. he didn't want there to be something that could
2: be perceived as petty human conflicts, like he didn't want there to be
1: he didn't want there to be romantic soapy he didn't or, want there yeah. to
2: be um a- anything that could be s- seen as yeah petty or like small time, he yeah. wanted. There they
1: were just bigger well, fish and to part fry. Part of that in too is that he was quite consciously writing a space western or wagon train to the stars when he wrote Star Trek, and westerns didn't deal with that sort of thing either. That westerns were unnuanced black hat white hat morality tales where there's a, a clearly right course of action and a clearly wrong course of action. So many stories in the original series are about Kirk. Disobeying orders because the right thing to do is so clear, and and it like all of them are are very much like that. It's interesting to fit it into the context of how that sh- that kind of thinking uh, shaped the next fifty years too of American society. I'm not saying Star Trek did that. I mm-hmm. think it was a symptom of of that thinking in society.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, a couple of things I just wanted to mention because we're getting a little long. <laughs> you know, Star Trek yeah. movie. I think that we should mention Savick a little bit. Yeah. Um, Kirstie Alley plays her here but she gets replaced mm-hmm. for the next movie um, it's one of those weird things when the casting changes, sometimes it can be really bumpy I find it relatively smooth here it's not that Kirstie Alley is good or bad but she's worthy of mentioning because I think that they set seeds here that if that had been allowed to flourish would have really helped a later installment of the movie mm-hmm. yeah, so,
1: yeah, uh, especially when it comes to the Star Trek six thing Correct. Yeah. Um, we'll so get there
0: basically the movie introduces a new character in a way that fits into the series and that we like and you know she and which also enriches Spock's
1: character and gives him more interesting arc as well yeah she's and like
0: mini Spock she's like learning from.
1: she's as close as Spock has to a child anywhere yeah. in the story right and, and also Kirk and Spock both get children finally in the same movie isn't it yes. kind of weird that uh, to think that she was
2: she was on paper really only introduced because this was Leonard Nimoy's very likely like his swan song right he was he was coming back under the understanding that spot that he wouldn't be playing spock anymore really that remember remember thing where he touches mccoy on the face that was a fail safe they they came up with that on the day Harve bennett just came over it wasn't in the script and they were about to play this scene and he just said leonard what, what would be something like if you were gonna if you were gonna give like a parting gesture to mccoy Uh, What would be something that would be appropriate for Spock to do? And he thought about it for like two minutes before they filmed. And then he just said, well, I might touch him similar to a mind meld. And he's like, okay, and pick something to say, just like a word that you pair with it. So that's what they did. And it was because Harv Bennett was thinking... We can bring Spock back somehow, but if Nimoy won't return, yeah. we have this new Vulcan that's been introduced who can essentially become the new Spock. That allegedly- Bennett also <laughs> understood
1: the, the three-way chemistry, and Spock and Kirk have that incredible goodbye moment, and for the last thing that Spock ever does to McCoy to be to just nerve-pinch him, deceiving him, nerve-pinch him, <laughs> and then go kill himself. Yeah. right? It, uh, it's quite touching, actually, that Spock cares enough in that moment to... Whether he's going to live or not, he wants to, you know, touch with McCoy's mind for a minute. he's important to spot. I
0: am genuinely surprised to hear that, though, because I was going to say when we were wrapping this up, that if I had a complaint about this movie, is that I, I, I think they spent a lot of time setting the table for the next movie, and I guess that's just not the case. I'm imagining that.
2: Well, no, I think Harv Bennett was just a really smart producer, and he knew... Oh, there's no getting... reason I can't leave the door open to this without cheapening the film somehow because if Nimoy never came back it would function the way it was intended script wise And like they deposited the his would... body on
0: the Genesis planet that they didn't need Leonard so Nimoy to film that yeah but that's the so shot specific of... like that planet was being generated life was being created yeah but Nimoy yeah.
1: didn't have to know all of that when, right. when Bennett wrote the story right. or at and least and the, the shot Bennett of the, the screenplay the
0: torpedo tube you know intact on the planet's surface. Didn't yeah, you have didn't to need be. Nimoy for that. I felt anyway like they knew Star Trek 3 was going to happen and they were setting the table for that and I have no problem with that. Well, by like, the time
1: it hit the screen they knew because the movie ends with the story of whatever continues, doesn't it? The Star Trek 2 ends with that. Nimoy, Star Trek 1 ends with the human adventure continues and Star Trek 2 I thought also ended with a sort of yeah. we'll be back dot dot dot.
2: Nimoy has just said in interviews and in his books... That when he filmed Spock's death scene, he was very much under the impression and that Spock was like dying. he was fucked up that day because when he came to set, and he, he did. It was the first time the last in time ages I that ears. he was like, yeah. "What do I do? Like, I, I'm emotional, and it's completely inappropriate because mm. I can't be in this scene." Yeah. And he'd never encountered that with Spock before. It, if anything, it was much more the opposite, where Spock would filter into his real life and he'd have to like turn it off and yeah. that would be the problem and here it was the other way hmm. functioning. So that only happened because he was like very likely this is the last time I'll play this character. Man. By his own design. He didn't want to keep playing him. He wanted to be done with it. He was in that period of his life where he had just written I'm not Spock a couple of years earlier <laughs> yeah. and wanted he liked Star Trek but he wanted only to move later time, time, I don't but. think
0: people can really understand unless they were like really in on it what a big deal Spock dying was culturally at the time. Too. Right. It was... He was was the most
2: recognizable element of Star Trek was him and his ears. Yeah,
1: Yeah, the Vulcan salute, the V with the fingers, and Mister Spock. If you said, "Hey, what do you know about Star Trek?" They'd say, "Mister Spock." Yeah, right. That's what everybody would say. Yeah, Uh, and that the funeral scene. We barely talked about it, which is too bad because I think it's incredible. There's so much in that scene. But uh, if you're gonna
0: make fun of William Shatner, before you do so, watch the funeral scene.
1: In that moment, when he takes the pause, when he says he's delivering the eulogy, and he says, uh, um, and in all my travels, talking about, you know, all of the places he's explored, and of all the souls he's encountered, Spock's was the most human. And he takes a pause in there, a dramatic Shatner-esque pause. It's also a very Kirk-esque pause. And in that moment, as his eyes are glassing up. You can see Kirk running through a thought process of, would Spock forgive me for saying this at his eulogy for calling him a human and thinking how human Spock's final act had been to give up his life to save his friend and not only do that but to do it in a deceitful way like you said that Kirk, he knew Kirk wouldn't be able to do it and Spock was counting on Kirk's uh, humanity to be able to forgive him for what he's done For right for, I think
2: for he also realizes in that moment nobody has taught him more about being human
1: than spock yeah absolutely right he's well aware of the fact that that he'd run from his responsibilities he feels he knows he's responsible for Khan and for everything that's just happened and for this loss and for all of the people that spock wasn't able to save and here he is standing there with the body of his best friend at his feet with all of these people looking to him, standing and, and respecting him, and he's feeling like... like he it's like he realizes in that moment that he hasn't earned any of it, yeah. and yeah. he has to start earning it today. And that's why in the next scene when he's looking out the window and McCoy says, how do you feel? He smiles and says, I feel young, and... You know he's been reborn. He's stopped running from it's everything he's been running for, and his life is is able to start. Yeah. Well,
2: actually, even in between, he has to be taught a lesson because the in between those two scenes is when David comes to see him, and I think the, the only reason is... David comes to see him is because Savick has told him something. That's right. So yeah. a Vulcan has intervened again, again. to give yeah. him some like information that he uses for Kirk to be able to start the process of being That's bigger right. than he was and being. The better. big
0: thing that we keep hitting is that. Kirk suffers a loss. Like, he wins the day. Khan doesn't get his revenge, obviously. But Kirk suffers a loss. And I don't think, unless it's one of the episodes that I haven't seen, we'd ever seen that. Kirk was always the guy who found a way to win. Like, he didn't win because he was Mm -hmm. amazing. He won because he fucking refused to lose, right? And he finally... Finally loses, and at the end of Star Trek Two, you kind of like, well, where do we go from here? And please get Star Trek Three to me as soon yeah. as possible, which is the polar opposite of my reaction at the end of. Yeah. of it does movie. actually it happen seen, in the series. But we had seen him it? lose. Yeah. Well,
1: for instance, his old friend Matt Decker, who okay. we mentioned earlier but that's not a loss for the audience at all we didn't we'd met him that episode his oh, brother his dies friend. in one episode horribly his, in well season, and, his brother, in and, his brother <laughs> and his sister-in-law die actually horribly. In episode, horribly and
2: in the episode before that he that's we talked about City on the edge of forever the reason I think it's one of the best ones that non-fans should see is because for the same quality at the end of the episode even more so because he loses because he chooses it right realizes he said everything's more important than me right so in in the moment moment. he can't and and it's kind of like he doesn't think about it he's because of how he's chosen to be he he can't not make the choice to put other people ahead of him yeah so it's like we we're exposed to his tragic flaw i guess that cost him this love of his life
1: um, yeah. We're at 33 we have minutes. One last thing that we so have to talk I about. I was going to
0: say we're at 33 minutes. So, is there anything else we want to say before yes. we wrap this? up? Yes. We've
1: talked a lot about the great, uh, the uh, Harve Bennett, who right. I think <coughs> he really made Star Trek. He gives me a Star Trek boner just a mention of his name. But there's another great. There are many great people attached to it, but there's another genius attached to or a Star Trek genius attached to this movie, and that is Nicholas Meyer. Who directed the movie and I don't know if we mentioned him, he also co wrote the screenplay. Yeah. Right. And he, he brought obviously knew his shit. He knew his shit. He he would this later was second movie. I it is, right. Wow. And then he'd later direct Star Trek Six, also a strong entry in the Star Trek movies that and were and he co wrote four. He co wrote four. And he's, you know, not showrunner, but isn't he writing the writer's room? No, he's Ra- running the writer's room? He's just Working he's, on he's working on the, on the staff for the new Star Trek show. He's one of the higher ups at the new CBS Star it Trek. It feels show.
0: like younger blood to me, as much as I love Wise uh, as the filmmaker and have a lot of respect for him. I think that for this type of science fiction adventure, yeah. you need someone who's really gonna. But
1: I think one of the really he's he brought a lot to this movie. He brought a lot to Star Trek, and one of the many good decisions CBS seems to be making about the new show. What's it called, Star Trek Discovery? Yeah, is bringing Nick Meyer and a lot of the great yeah. star trek talent i think it mind. was
2: a perfect concoct like cocktail in that harv bennett had a really strong sense of what how to make this movie way better than the first one, like how the first one misfired how the people involved in making it didn't get what made the show great mm-hmm. and how to transpose that hopefully to a feature film format and then he went out and hired somebody who didn't need to know star trek that well he just knew Character dynamics really well, and was able to make a exactly really because Bennett, entertaining film, regardless of whether it was a Star Trek movie, yeah. and all the basics of Star Trek were covered in right. advance of bringing. Bennett up the had director. the story
1: himself, and then he wrote the screenplay with Meyer, and Meyer didn't have to know Dick about Star Trek; he just needed to know movies.
0: Yeah, I know how to tell a story. Is there anything you want to say, Jim, before we? Wrap no, this up? I rattled on enough. <laughs> yeah, we're good. Uh, I, think, I think we've been pretty fair about it. like We're all huge fans of that.
1: We are. All that they've loved, all that they've fought for, all that they've stood for, will now be put to the test. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. The word, sir, the word is no. I am therefore going anyway.
0: You do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again.
1: Engage auto systems. Clear all morons. Cleared, sir. One quarter impulse power. Someone is stealing the Enterprise. Warp speed. Ring Alberta Praiser. She's arming torpedoes. Shields up. The shield's non-responsive. Fuck!
0: We're a sitting duck.
1: Join us on this, the final voyage of the Starship Enterprise.
0: Star Trek 3, the Search for Spock. The adventure continues. So here's a fun fact about Star Trek three that I learned because of my personal affinity to f- the Friday the 13th franchise. What? What? <laughs> um, here's a thing that almost happened. Star Trek 3D. <laughs> the 3D, revenge. 3D this time d was personal. going to be, uh, well, 3D did come into vogue for a while in, in genre the movies time, right? in, yeah. in the 80s. Uh, Friday the 13th Part 2, Jaws 3, Jaws Amityville. 3 was 83, wasn't yeah. it? Mm-hmm. Amityville. Um, but the f- real sort of test of it was the first one out to the gate, I believe, was Friday the 13th Part 2. And they were looking very carefully at the how they were going about getting the 3D and what the 3D response was. And the box office on Friday the 13th Part 3 was, like all of the early Fridays, incredible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but in the end, they decided, you know what? Let's not do 3D. Let's put the 3D money into doing a completely computer-animated sequence.
1: The Genesis so. Wave. Oh. Which so was, interestingly, the first fully computer-generated sequence in movie history,
0: hmm. like including Tron. But it's interesting that for that, what, 30, 35 seconds of footage? Yeah, it's less than a minute. It's yeah, be. they they said, we'll do that or we'll do 3D, and they chose that. and Which it is was they, the right call. Yeah, the
2: movie's better for it. There's... Probably Harf Bennett again. <laughs> well, sure, I'm the...
1: sorry to do this to you twice, Larry, but that footage is in Star Trek II and then reused in Star Trek II. Did they reuse it? Yeah. Oh, that's weird. Then I must but 82. Have been for... Anyway, the but truth of it is... Isn't that is, interesting that, that was all
0: done in that 11 million first use of CG? What's true about it is that they were very much considering going 3D on it. Yeah. And I like that in the idea of, like, wow, this could be a potential for, like, cool visual landscapes. But because they were continuing a story that wasn't in 3D... And because it adds such another layer of complexity to the shooting, especially at this time, we're talking the, the you know, red lens, blue lens, 3D, right, like, yeah. like primitive. And they had a first clusters. time director. For yeah, three, so. it, it would add so much complexity. It would slow down the shoot so much that they decided against it in the end. And it's just interesting, it's like another alternate reality universe, where this Star Trek 3 doesn't exist, but there's Star Trek 3D. I can D. just see Harv Bennett pacing around his room be like, are you fucking kidding me? I just got this thing back on the rails. <laughs> yeah. And now they want this gimmicky bullshit. Um, but as I keep doing, I guess 2 and 3 is almost one gigantic movie in my mind. That's yeah. my problem. I will bring, I bring my baggage to it. So, as far as I'm concerned, Wrathorcon, second act. Uh, the second act's not quite as good as the first act, but I do think It's It's shorter, which a second act always should be. Should be. So it has that going for it. I think it's really good, and uh, most of it has to do, and unsurprisingly because of the title, of them trying to track down Spock. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, the Genesis planet has reignited with life, and with it, so has Spock. And uh, meanwhile, the Klingon Empire has got interest in this weapon, which, although it was designed to create it, of course, could be used as an incredible weapon. Mm -hmm. It would be a planet destroyer as much as a planet creator could be yeah so uh we get all these pawns moving into place and we get to see some epic badassery
1: it's also a spock creator that's right Genesis weapon just happens to be exactly what ends up leading to
0: the search for spock yeah right so yeah uh, it's, it's a direct, like, I think it happens, like, immediately following, his, like, so it's a few well, months or something in between? Like. They,
2: they, the only reason they get back to Earth and space talk so slowly is because they can only fly so fast. Right. I'm, Shit. because of the battle, battle damage, yep. presumably. And they've dropped people off on the way, like, David and Savick are on the Grissom.
0: And Some time has passed, but it, it It's like a month, maybe, or a month No, or I think, a think it's longer than a month. Like, well, it feels more connected was, to the previous film than usually these sequels do, and I yeah. kind of like that. It, it acknowledges what happened before, and what happened yeah. before obviously is going to have play big in what we see here. Yeah, The fans willed Spock back to life then, I guess. I, 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 I was genuinely surprised to, to hear that he was meant to die, but no, we're going to bring Spock back, and that's going to give us even more Star Trek money.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, um, Nimoy, it also just might have been some leverage tactics, right? I want to direct. He really wanted to direct. And maybe he knew all along that, yes, I will let them twist my pointed ear into coming back to play Spock again. But in, behind the, the camera. but in the interim, I'm going to get behind the camera and I'm going to earn some some uh, street he credit as much a director.
2: He approached each film as its own thing. like He had no master plan like maybe Harv Bennett did. Yeah. And he just looked at it as, is this character still interesting? Is there something outside the character interesting in the project? So with three, I think he realized or decided, well, if I direct it that's worth showing up at the end of Spock and yeah. putting a nice little bow yeah. on, and let's be on honest. this for the fans. He walked the, away fans it. Yeah. the fans and want it. Yeah, and then if there was no four, which you know, in his mind, maybe there won't be, right? That's why at the end it says, and the adventure continues, yeah. Yeah. is because it's
1: this non-committal, they're still out there type of yeah. thing, right? Shatner, when a Star Trek movie is wrapped, says, I hope there's another one. Yeah. Nimoy says, if there's another one, where Spock has something interesting to do, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do it, right. That's his commitment. He had right.
2: always maintained this since the show ended. This like distance from Spock, and I am not Spock. It was really troubling to him to be so closely associated with it, and he was always so worried about being pigeonholed and that kind of thing.
1: Well, so. when he, when you haven't played the character in a decade and a half, and you're driving down the street and people are saying, "Oh, Mister Spock!" Hey! hollering at you, and after. Spock like his acting career did not exactly skyrocket. He actually years later he re- you know he
2: f- was very vocal about the fact that once he got Spock never again in his life did he worry about work. He yeah. never had to worry about yeah. ever being employed again mm-hmm. because of Spock. Mm. So he was very grateful for that, but that doesn't mean that what he was employed doing was what he wanted ideally to be right. Employed doing. Right. He just didn't have to worry about money. He also yeah. became an alcoholic during the series. So that probably added a level of... I thought he was an alcoholic before going into the series. That's when he realized he was an alcoholic. He kind of blamed the shooting schedule, the pressure of Spock and And having to be so emotionally removed all the time because that's how he played. He didn't know how to play it any other way.
1: Yeah, For anybody who's interested in these these guys in the the behind-the-scenes Star Trek stuff, there's a fantastic documentary called Mind Meld that... uh, it's just Nimoy and Shatner sitting in Nimoy's backyard on a lovely June day having a conversation about what it's like to be the cultural icons of Kirk and Spock and they tell stories about their addictions and their friendship and all of their What stuff. it did to their life. Mm-hmm. And the same time, like Nimoy shares how much he respected Shatner for his ability to quit smoking and he tells an anecdote about Shatner quit smoking while shooting the first season of Star Trek and that he would be just like keyed up because he was having a nick fit and they're shooting and the day go- days going long and like any kind of s- expensive sci-fi television it's going to be really like repetitive and a lot of waiting and he's just eh and he would just march outside the studio you know throw the studio doors open walk out onto the paramount lot and shout at the cosmos just
0: i want a cigarette <laughs> but, but it he worked. have
1: it <laughs> and it everyone on the sound stage would hear it and there'd be a few beats of silence and then, you know, the, the ragged Bill Shatner who'd walked out the door would walk back in the suave, fucking collected <laughs> James Tiberius Kirk ready to nail the scene. Yeah. Meanwhile, Nimoy's uh, assistant is standing stage side with a styrofoam cup filled to the brim with vodka so that the moment they rap for the day, exactly can start drinking, wrapped, He could start drinking. On his way back to his trailer yeah. where he would hit a full bottle. Right, and like he tells stories about on his birthday being passed out drunk by two before guests arrived, yeah. and sleeping through his and birthday he parties He does routinely like, wow like, more than he doesn't once hang at all on
2: Star Trek. He just talks about how it was during the filming of the series, somewhere in the second season, where he started ritually drinking, and it was because the pressure of the shooting day, and and the sure the pressure himself. of playing Spock for the shooting day, yeah. heavily contributed to him feeling like I need the release at the end of the day. Yeah. And then that drink became more drinks and blah, blah, blah.
0: Well, I want to pull it back to Star Trek, Star Trek 3 Trek a little three. Bit. Yeah. Um, Yes, do it. I, I do think, like I said earlier, that the fans wanted Spock back and that they wanted Spock back and that whether they admitted it or not, I think somewhere along the line that they this was an inevitability. Yeah. But I think the way they buy themselves out of bringing Spock back, because that was such a big deal, is they kill David. Kirk's son I mean Kirk's like son. dramatically
2: the way that they can allow it or what
0: well it, it's uh, well it was in a way like we needed Kirk lost right and in a way getting he can't win that back without losing exactly, something else yeah. like it he, doesn't dramatically
2: function it's not satisfying exactly in a way it would
0: almost undo a lot of what the part two accomplished and well, a lot of what part two accomplished was built into the death of Spock yeah so yeah. Spock comes back for to Kirk, life it accomplished for Kirk's character though. yeah yes. so Spock does come back to life but narratively it costs the life of David Yeah, some blood yeah. thus that
1: not cheapening the lessons Kirk and the growth well
0: people in the make fun there. of it but, but it when my I was a kid the scene where, where David dies and, and, and he has that you cling on bastard you killed my son yeah I Another was, really that was great I was all fucking in like I was practically on my feet because that was almost more of a shock for me as a kid than Spock's death. Because Spock's death made sense. Spock's death had weight and purpose. Right. There was something really it's a choice. sudden and brutal about and David. And the randomness
1: of it, that Christopher Lloyd's uh, commander... Doesn't even Kree. say kill David. Crew. He just says Crew kill, kill, one, kill one, one of them. One I one don't care which. He doesn't care which. And then we don't find out until the knife goes in, and Kirk doesn't find out until after... Savick the death rasps are heard, and yeah. Savick says
0: David, David, is, David is dead. David is dead. Uh, right. It's an incredible... Like, for me, an incredibly powerful scene. And uh, one of, like, again, I I think that I might have almost felt that it was cheap and that they brought Spock back, but that bought bought them out of it um, dramatically. And uh, I tie these two movies together so much that, like I've said, they're almost the same movie. I would agree that the second part two is better for me, but I got a lot of love for (laughs) number three. I honestly think
1: part three has, if not the more... Well explained and well explored villain. Christopher Lloyd's Klingon doesn't have, uh, Commander Krug doesn't have all of that backstory informing Khan, but he's, I think, maybe a more memorable screen villain.
0: I love the details on the Klingon ship. I love John Larroquette. I love the Klingon
1: dog. The Klingon dog is great. Yeah, <laughs> and just there's some, it's interesting that the the villains are also the main source of not the main source, there's a lot of comic relief in that movie, it comes in little moments like the Don't Call Me Tiny Sulu moment yeah. and the, that sort of thing, Get in the Closet when Uhura, is that in number He's three? is pretty as a nut cake yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the the fact that Christopher Lloyd the guy who kills Kirk's son and is the big bad of the movie is also having you know, to do with the light hearted little moments Molts, joy, Choo Choo. Yeah.
0: Well, there is a weird, rough charm to the Klingons. I mean, I don't want to have a drink with them; they're not going to be my buddies. But you know what you're getting with Klingons, right? Right. And I kind of like—I kind of dig. That's why
2: they're fan favorites. Because when they show up, you know what you're getting. <laughs>
0: yeah. No, they're going to use any excuse to fight because that's what they're here to do. Fight, goddamn yeah. We
1: always know what to expect of Klingons, and you know we can expect good times when they're around.
0: <laughs> um, and I guess Klingons are another villain that they did bring from the show although they've gotten a, a, an interesting makeover uh,
2: updates well they get it in the first movie you just barely see them in the first <laughs> That's movie they're right. central in this movie they get movie. the aesthetic good,
1: update tricky. of the forehead ridges but and the, the ship right no the ships look like that the D7 or whatever it's called cruisers from the beginning of and the, they look like that in the original series too but it's yeah. in Star Trek 3 where we first see the Klingon the bird of bird prey, prey yeah. the little guy that originally it had always been a Romulan bird of prey that we'd heard of in the old series but um yeah that famous Klingon ship the one that cloaks uh, we had never seen before Star Trek 3
0: we have another casualty that we haven't mentioned too. yeah I was,
1: I've been waiting to bring it up mm. not only does he lose his
2: son but he loses his ship his ship which he's had a longer relationship with it's not more important to him yeah but but making that decision be more important to the audience yeah you know like they uh, I was too young to see this movie in the theater or if I did I don't remember it but I can remember seeing it and being really like hollowed
1: out when the Enterprise, that was the final is straw destroyed. that fucked the camel between Par- uh, Paramount and Roddenberry too. Hey, and mm-hmm. between Bennett and Roddenberry, and it finally the allowed. No, that Roddenberry leaked it because he was enraged that they were going to blow up oh. the Enterprise. So he leaked it to the public, and Paramount found out it was him, and they oh, and they, they booted him right. They booted him, they they uh, froze him out of, of really any kind of creative control at all yeah and that's how he was finally taken down but
0: but you know dramatic stakes again this is a movie not a tv show we're gonna bring it up it's interesting to me that like the enterprise we do get the enterprise back much like we get spock back but for the next movie entirely no Enterprise. yeah (laughs) and that's That's the characters are more important yeah that's why the fourth one functions yeah it's such a huge part of star trek to me and especially the little kid part of me I really like the space shooting fight, but, but, right? It's just like. Yeah. And it's interesting that they stick to their guns. Like, uh, the next movie, much like part three, is going to continue almost more or less directly after this. Yes, yeah, it's three months and, later. Uh, but close enough. Yeah. Right? Uh, so they're still flying around in this fucking Klingon Blippert and Prey. Yeah. And uh, it still feels Star Trek. I like that they're making big swings here. They're taking big chances. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know. Well, it's a movie about.
2: Laying everything on the line because you don't feel like you have any... Like, he says at the end, if I hadn't tried, the cost would have been my soul. Yeah. He's The lesson he's learned in this one is that there's times when some doing something is worth everything else, potentially. Yeah. It's not quite as meaty a lesson. And I think the reason that this one feels kind of... Not weak, but just like a lesser film than the second one is because... Um, it is essentially all in service of bringing Spock back. It is. That's really the only like larger goal that's affected. It's the story's the interesting, but it's way more will. of like a rip roaring two part episode. Mm-hmm. You know the, well, by
1: today's standards, structurally, Star Trek II, the, the climax of it is Spock's sacrifice. Right. That whole chase to get away from Khan's exploding ship. Yeah. In Star Trek Three, that same moment is Kirk kicking Christopher Lloyd in the face and giving <laughs> yeah. a crack. Right. I right. have had enough of you. Yeah, and here's what I will say. It's a Looney Tunes like Wily e. Coyote dropping <laughs> in as, the lava. As, and as I a love mark it. Against, it's a weaker moment though.
0: As a mark against it, I love it too. I've had enough of you the kicking of him too. But again, we have to fall back on the stakes of what has just happened. Right. This is Kirk avenging the death of his son and yeah. the destruction of the Enterprise, and as far as he knows, imminent death's about to happen. And there is something about that fight, about the way the ground's constantly caving in below them yeah. and above them and they yeah. fall onto ledges and they dance above molten lava that it's like every supervillain fight from every movie all at once.
1: And the soundstage they built for that is to this day impressive. The way the ground is cracking and heaving. The fight the heart, is not that impressive. I'm not
0: saying it's poorly done. The fight is, is the, the choreography is mad. but that's And the way they
1: film meh. super like tight so that you can't
2: tell that, that neither of them made. is doing a very good job because yeah. like can't move. They're just, just sort of
0: walking you... around. As far car. as, an over the top villain fight in a crazy environment it almost becomes parody mm, like yeah. it could be in a movie making fun of movies like this yeah yeah <laughs> like it pushes it pretty far but because we want Christopher Lloyd to go down so hard <laughs> I no, wait, we let that shit when go. I
2: watch that sequence I just like wait on the edge of my seat for when Kirk launches himself off the off the cliff and goes bah! and yeah. jumps on him that's <laughs> the only moment in the whole scene where I genuinely feel like I'm having the reaction this scene's supposed to make me have, and the rest of it is basically I feel like Leonard Nimoy's inexperience as a director is showing a little bit, mm-hmm. and maybe their budget restrictions are showing a little I bit. Mean, Although they it did have a bigger budget than two. They're trying to give you a big two.
0: finish. To their credit, like they're trying to give you a big finish, and a I different
2: f- big finish than the previous film. That's what I love about the two, three, four. Is that. Yeah they have very different priorities in terms of well we just did this, yeah. so let's do something else purposefully.
0: For me, I think that like one or two less falls, one or two less ledges, the lava was probably overdoing it. You know, yeah. there's just a few little things. Um I also wanted to say that this movie has one of my favorite moments in Klingon ever. When the Klingons first get down and find the casket that uh, Spock was in, there (laughs) were these (laughs) bugs that got hypergrown because of the Genesis Genesis Project. So instead of being little microbes, they're these huge snake-like things. What does the Klingon do? Does he take out his phaser and shoot it? Does he even fucking stab it? No. Fucking figures out where it's thrown And, hands and, yeah. and it he part. kills this thing. Picks with one, his one up with his, his hands, hands. hands, waits for it. Yeah, because to choke it's him. there. Yeah. It's not even a sentient creature. It's just yeah. like. Well, Klingons yeah.
1: kill things for the same reason Kirk climbs mountains, I guess, it's right? There. Because it's there. And then they
2: give him the line, nothing interesting going on down here. Like he gets on his communicator
0: <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. just to make it even more commonplace. Like he does yeah. that every morning. I just after breakfast. kill stuff every day. Like this is the only. Creature of its kind in the universe, he's he's like making it extinct at this moment. It's
1: got another one of my favorite Klingon moments too, and I guess it's less of a Klingon moment, but it's during that great sequence of the self-destruct of the Enterprise when they walk onto the bridge and there's just one thing speaking, and it's the countdown
0: time counting. (laughs)
1: Yes, it speaks. Speaking. Let me hear. Let
0: me hear. Yeah. And another great payoff too, dramatically, uh it's been a one way beating for the for the crew of the Enterprise for such a long time. So when all those Klingons get blown up and we see like the Christopher Lloyd's character just lose his fucking mind. Yeah. Like he just lost his crew. Victory is going to be empty at this point, but he's still gonna get fucking victory. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Um yeah. I love
1: the, the heist sequence, too, the stealing of the Enterprise, the sabotaging of the Excelsior's engines, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Number three, even though Spock's not there, and maybe it's because Spock's not there, two is great on all the levels we already discussed, three is sort of like a rootin' tootin' Star Trek movie. It's got the heist to the Enterprise, it's got the chase to the Genesis planet, it's got the big fist of cuffs at the end, where I believe, well, not only does Kirk do the whole body throw where he jumps <laughs> on the guy like... Uh, but he also doesn't he do a backflip Gordon well, style he where he kicks him he and does the cat, cat, cat catch his foot and flips him yeah, back over himself Christopher Lloyd does the backflip like <laughs> which is a really good stunt but that <laughs> and then choice. the dive up it's the cliff the rest two two is just stunts. them sort of but it's room and then four we get the comedy we get like yeah. Star Trek meets Kruk Dundee which we're about to talk about <sighs> we'll get there. It movies just function to on m- different levels and this one functions well yeah I just
2: wanted to mention you brought up the moment where he realizes David's been killed yes I actually feel like maybe it's because the speech at the end of two where most people f- associate that as like Shatner shining the brightest he ever did. I feel like it's actually the moment in three. Um, and. You
1: Klingon bastard, you've killed my son.
2: Well, just from the moment he hears it because he's failed utterly to do the thing that you that even he assumes he'll be able to do, which yeah. is, like, save the day somehow. He's always been able to. Everyone assumes that about him. And once that's happened, at that moment, it's kind—it's of, the closest you ever see Kirk to being hopeless. Yeah. Um, and I think, just as, as, an, as a performance moment, it speaks uh, volumes to him as a performer that Nimoy didn't even know... And he's the director of the fucking movie. And the only person who was on set other than the camera guy, they cleared the set for that scene. So mm-hmm. the actors are there who are in the shot. Everyone else is gone. And when he hears the line and then stumbles backwards and, like, trips yeah. back... Trips into Even Nimoy didn't even know whether that was performance or accidental. Right. And he went up to him afterwards and asked him. And <laughs> Shatner never told him. Right. He just, like, let it hang. Yeah. So I love not knowing... Uh,
1: whether he tripped on purpose
2: whether it's performance or whether it mm. was just a happy accident but either way it's either way it's performance and, and kept we going it. yeah. it's performance it's either way you it's just brilliant whether it's choice or not yeah. I think it's that re- moment that I refute when people say that William Shatner was talentless or just a joke or whatever yeah. it's really that scene that makes me not agree
0: with them I think it's the one genuinely shocking moment in the movie the movie's mm. called The Search for Spock and we fucking know How it's gonna end. (laughs) And Uh, when the
2: Enterprise blows up, you see it coming because they do the countdown, and you know that's happening. But at
0: the end of Star Trek 2, we didn't see the death. At least I didn't see the death of Spock coming. Yeah, nobody did. So I think that might be the reason. I think that other than the death of David, nothing really surprised us about part three, and uh, part two maybe had more to reveal. But they're uh, they're like they're both great, and like I said in my head, they're practically one movie.
1: We didn't we didn't get to touch on the fact that De Devor- Forest Kelly probably has more meat to chew on here than anywhere it's else, where he gets to play the halfway crazed, tortured McCoy who talks to himself, That's goes right. to he goes to bars in the middle of San Francisco, like weird alien bars, and and uh, tries to solicit a ride to the Genesis planet, which is. Uh, Genesis is planet forbidden! Yeah, uh, McCoy gets to do some fun stuff. I love and the stuff that he...
0: Typically he tends to get the short shrift out of those three, hey? yeah. Usually he gets a pep talk once an episode or once a movie and a couple of wry lines, but... Yeah, uh, yeah he was possessed of Spock. McCoy yeah.
1: has spent so long trying to crack the nut that is Spock. What, what makes Spock tick? And now McCoy is just to the brim with Spock yeah. he's got Spock's consciousness <laughs> rattling around inside of him he's way closer than he's ever felt he wanted to, to be to Spock and yeah. you know I guess, does he really understand Spock any better after that? He doesn't seem to.
0: DeForest Kelly is an actor who can overdo it sometimes for me, and I yeah. don't think he does. It's one of those things that when you're playing something that weird, it's real easy to overplay your hand. And in the same, I think he handles it well.
2: In the same way that all the performances are best viewed in context of the time, too, yeah. is especially, I think, of the main three is best viewed that way. But I just wanted to also point out that the, the one of the biggest things I like about f- Five is the same thing I like about this, which is he gets a chance to do something of worth rather than just kind of tagging along. Damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not
0: a fill-in-the-blank. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Is there anything else we want to say about Search for Spock? No. 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 Never. Let's never speak of it (laughs) again. part trek into outer space and into the world of star trek i hope you're enjoying it because in two weeks we're going to be here in another episode part one has been entitled double dumb on you at the insistence of one paxton francis a fun and obscure reference from a movie that we haven't even got around to referencing yet that one's for you paxton and for the rest of my rank and review listeners out there Please send feedback to gmail.com. Please seek out the show on Facebook and on iTunes Please tell your other friends about this little podcast And thank you, as always, so very much for listening to my show